This is Bigger Questions with your host, Robert Martin. Welcome to Bigger Questions, recorded live in the city of Melbourne. Today's show comes from Belgrave Heights Convention. Today's bigger question, is prayer effective? And we're asking this question today to David Robertson. David works with Third Space, an initiative of City Bible Forum to help Australians ask the bigger questions. He's the author of numerous books, including The Dawkins Letters, The Magnificent Obsession, and he blogs at the We Flee. He's a popular speaker and regularly debates and engages atheists around the world. And he joins me now. Please welcome David Robertson. David, welcome to Bigger Questions. Thank you. It's a privilege uh, to be back. Well, welcome back, yes. Now, David, you regularly engage atheists. What is it about atheists that make you want to engage them about the big questions of life? I like the fact that they consider the questions. I mean, I, I want to engage everybody. Um, I think particularly atheists, though, because uh, I once tried very hard to be an atheist and I couldn't. Right, okay. <laughs> well, thanks for sharing, David. Well, to kick off... Bigger questions. We do like to ask a couple of smaller questions. We do try to have a bit of fun on the show. Now, today we're talking with David Robertson about prayer. So in today's smaller questions, David, I thought we'd test you on how much you know about the effectiveness of prayer. Okay, there's two questions, both multiple choice. Question one. In the 2003 film Bruce Almighty, news reporter Bruce Nolan, played by Jim Carrey, was given the powers of God for a short period of time in the city of Buffalo in the United States. Now, when he had these godlike powers, he hears millions of prayers in the people of Buffalo and decides on a shortcut to save time and just answers yes to all of the three million prayer requests. So what happens next? Was it A, nothing, prayer doesn't change anything and the world moves on, showing that prayer really isn't effective? B, everyone was happy as he predicted? Was it C, the city falls into chaos or D, God himself appears again to Bruce, wishing he'd thought of that shortcut and lets Bruce take on more God responsibilities. So what happened after Bruce said yes to all, to all those prayers? C. C. Uh, and the answer is C. The city falls into chaos. Yeah, why not? Yeah. And I, I haven't even seen the film either. So. <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately, chaos does descend because everybody who was praying to win the lottery wins all at once. So there's some 1,100 lottery winners in the Buffalo area and each winner only got $17 and hence chaos ensued. And Bruce's self-centered incompetent attempts at playing God begin to wreak havoc all over the globe. So do you think that praying for the lottery is an appropriate thing to pray for? No. <laughs> no not, even, not even remotely. I don't even pray for my team to win. All oh, right. Is that why they lose all the time? Uh, no. Uh, I think I once did pray about a, a sports result for one particular reason, but no, I, I don't think God is, how shall I put it? I don't think God's a lottery machine. Right. Okay. Well, you're doing well so far in the quiz. Uh, question two. There have been a number of academic studies done on prayer, and one of the most famous was the 2006 Harvard study dubbed the Great Prayer Experiment, testing the effect of prayer on patients receiving coronary artery bypass surgery. Now, what were the results of the experiment? Was it A, prayer worked all the time and all the people prayed for recovered quicker than expected and faster than those not prayed for? Was it B, prayer worked some of the time and there was a modest but noticeable improvement for the group who were prayed for? Was it C, there was no difference in any group who were prayed for or not? Or D, prayer itself had no effect on complication-free recovery, but those who knew they were being prayed for were in fact worse off. So what were the results of the experiment. Uh, 
I'll, I'll take a guess at B. B, prayer work some of the time. Yeah. Well, it's not actually. The answer no. was actually D. D. Yeah. Prayer itself had no effect on complication-free recovery, but those who knew they were being prayed for actually were worse off. Yeah. That's an intriguing development, David, but uh, we'll talk about that just in a second. But your prayers have been answered, but you got one of our two smaller questions right. You passed. Big round of applause. <laughs> so did the results of that Harvard prayer experiment, did they surprise you at all that that those who knew they were being prayed for were actually worse off than those who weren't prayed for at all? No, what surprises me is that intelligent people thought that they could conduct a prayer experiment. Um, by definition, you can't do that. So you don't think prayer can be measured? No. no why, why not? Because prayer is not a mechanical thing. It's not subject to scientific measurement. But for example, if prayer is prayer to an almighty God and you don't believe there is such an almighty God, how are you going to measure that? Mm. So no, of course you can't measure it. It's a, it's a ludicrous experiment that makes a mockery of prayer. Right, okay. So, but if you didn't have, did have the powers of God though, perhaps like Bruce Almighty, how do you think you'd make the experiment work out? I wouldn't. I, I would regard it as an offensive and blasphemous thing to do. Right. This idea that we can measure God and that we can I mean, there's stuff in life that's relational that you can't... I mean, how much does your wife love you? Well, what's the quantity? And does she love you more this week than she did last week? And how are you going to measure that? And who's going to determine it? And are you prepared to go into a lab to have your neurons checked? But this, so this, do you think this, this means that prayer isn't effective, though? No, I just, it just means I don't think that... There are some things that are not measurable by science. So John Lennox, for example, has this wonderful illustration that says that science can tell you uh, why the water in the kettle boils and electricity and everything else. What it cannot tell you is why you put the kettle on in the first place. Mm. You wanted to make a cup of tea for your granny because you love her or whatever. So there are questions that science answers that the empirical method is very good for answering and there are questions that to try and make science answer is to make a mockery of science as well. Mm. Now American comedian and actor W.C. Fields once said, prayers never bring anything they may bring solace to the sap, the bigot, the ignorant, and the lazy, but to the enlightened, it is the same as asking Santa Claus to bring you something for Christmas. So what do you make of his assessment? I think that there's a blind man claiming that he can see. He's claiming to be enlightened. He's claiming to be one of the people who sees, and he's walking around in darkness. Um, I mean, there are Christians and there are religious people who treat prayer as a mechanical thing. If you just say enough prayers, you know, I mean, I don't know if you've ever heard someone say, well, if only I prayed for 24 hours, then I'll get what I want. No, that's not how it works. That's not how prayer works. That's not how prayer works. Yeah. And, I, and I think that, but I think what he's saying is a statement of complete sense in his world, but his worldview is so tiny yeah. that it just doesn't work. Yeah. So is that your experience of prayer, though, that it doesn't actually bring anything? My experience of prayer is that I try not to think of it as a way to get things. But I do pray, and I have seen answers to prayer that are remarkable. They're very few. Mm -hmm. They are very few. Um, I will mention two. And both of these are honest, and one you may probably want to look at in more detail. When I first became a minister, I went to the small highland village in Scotland of Brora. And I, I wanted to be able to take a bunch of kids on a trip. So I said to the parents, we're going to do it. Now, the church had no money, so we hire a bus. And the bus was going to cost £87.50, I think it was. 
And I said, well, just do it. My treasure in the church, it doesn't matter. We'll do it because the money will come in. I was young, I was naive, I was full of enthusiasm. And I said to my wife, come on, we'll pray. We went, we, we got on the bus, no money had arrived. Uh, the bus driver said, how are you paying for this? I said, I'll pay a check. Um, it's funny, some of my atheist friends, when I told this story, got really mad at me and said, you wrote a check that would bounce. So I wrote this check for 87 pounds 50. Uh, some of the parents who'd come with their kids, they gave me a little bit of money, uh, and that added up to, in total, £37.50. And then I just thought, well, I, I just hope and pray that the rest of the money turns up, £87.50, had £37.50. And I went through my door, and there was a cheque for £50. I mean, how do you explain that? I, I told nobody. I, I mean, I literally told nobody. Didn't ask, didn't, it was just myself and my wife, and... That £87.50 came there. So, so you attribute the answer to that to answer to prayer? Well, or an almighty coincidence. I don't care either way. It was wonderful. Um, but what I would say is I, I did not spend the rest of my life going around saying, Lord, I need this amount of money. Can you give me this? That's the one time in my life that has happened to me. Mm. Although I do pray for my general needs. I pray for food and so on. But the other big answer to prayer from my point of view was in 2011, uh, I was ill. I was in a coma. So just, maybe just unpack that story a bit. So you... How did you get ill? Because you were doing a wedding or something and you weren't feeling yeah. particularly great. So tell us what happened. Well, there's, there's a kind of long version and a short version. And since this is not a series, I think I'll give you the short version. Um, I woke up on a Wednesday feeling, um, Wednesday night, feeling quite bad and collapsed in my bathroom. Thought, oh, I'll, I'll go to the hospital tomorrow. I went and they said, might be something to do with your heart. But tell you what, I'll give you a massive dose of aspirin. So they did. Uh, unfortunately, I had an internal bleed. And aspirin makes you bleed. So I was, I, I was bleeding and bleeding and bleeding and not knowing it and um, internally. And I went to a wedding. And during the wedding, I went into a real cold sweat. And I thought, oh, please don't collapse for a wedding. You know, I, I was just thinking about the bride and groom. It would be some dramatic wedding. So nothing happened. We went to a hospital to collect somebody to go to the reception. And I said to my wife, can, can we just go home? Because can, can you drop me at home? You go to the reception. And my son said, Dad, I've left my iPhone at the church. And I went, oh, oh, you know. Um, but that saved my life because if I'd gone home, I would have died. Um, I, we stopped at the church to get the iPhone. He went in to get it. I said to my wife, I'm sorry, I need to get out of the car and get some air. I got out and I collapsed in a pool of blood. And I mean a pool of blood. It was just blood everywhere. But it was beside a surgery, which was great. Uh, doctor came out, ambulance headed off. I had uh, what's called the Heliobacter virus, which gives you ulcers. Um, two of them had burst. That's okay, you can cope with that. And they couldn't stop the bleeding because the ulcers had burst over a main artery. And so I was gushing blood. So I, they gave me 24 pints of blood product. Now you've got eight pints in your body. So what was happening was they were pouring this blood in and it was pouring out. And eventually I drowned in my own blood. My lungs stopped working. And I got E. coli out of the lung. I got numerous infections. They incubated me. I, they, what do they do when they stick a tube in your throat? I couldn't breathe. They put a, a fishbowl over my head to try and get me to breathe. I was in, a coma, in and out of a coma for about seven weeks. I got pneumonia. Oh, you pretty well name it. I got infection after infection after infection. So how were you through this experience? Like, Were you, were you conscious of this, of this pain, etc.? When I eventually recovered and went back to the ICU, I said to one of the surgeons, um, I have a memory, and I don't know if it's a false memory, because so much messed around with my head. Uh, 
I said, I remember being in incredible pain. And he said, no, David, you were in incredible pain. We couldn't regulate your pain. Um, if you'd asked me seven weeks later how long I'd been in hospital, I would have said two days. Um, I, I was just in and out of stuff. So, for example, my daughter lives here in Australia, and she'd just got married that year and gone out to, with her Australian husband, obviously. And uh, this happened within four months of the wedding, and she got a phone call saying, look, uh, you better come back because your dad's dying and this was a, some, a family in the congregation. I mean, we had no money, she had no money, but they paid for her to come back. Um, so, so was that, that serious? Oh yeah, oh, I mean, uh, my wife was told, I remember one, well I don't, she told me that one weekend the doctor came in and, and said to her, look, he's got a 50-50 chance of surviving the weekend, but even if he survives, uh, he, he probably won't make it. Uh, to the end of the week or the week after that. And they said, even if he does make it, what, what they call your hemoglobin, um, it was so low. The hospital told me they never had anyone so low who lived. Uh, and that's what pumps oxygen to your brain. So they, they, they were saying, he, you know, they said to my wife, we live in a manse, which is, um, you know, a house that's owned by the church. And they actually said to her, can you believe this? They said, you need to start looking for a new house. Because even if he lives... Uh, he'll, he'll not work he'll again. He'll be a very different person. Yeah, he'll yeah. not work again. Yeah, and, yeah. You know, I mean, they said my lungs probably wouldn't work. I wouldn't be able to go up and down stairs, but my brain probably wouldn't work either. So you obviously mentioned your daughter has come back yeah. to Scotland. Um, how, how was it for the rest of your family? Well, Your son was pretty affected by the whole thing as well, wasn't he? Yeah, my, my daughter, the amazing thing about my daughter, this is to tell you, because they gave me these really, because of the pain and everything else, they gave me these really strong drugs, but they messed with my head. So I kept writing things. This is, a, this is actually quite funny. When I went back uh, into the ICU unit, I, I, I couldn't remember being in it at all, and I rang the doorbell, and as soon as the bell rang, all the smells and sounds came back into my head. But this woman came to the door and she went, oh, it's the vicar with the laptop. And I said, what? She said, you are the only patient we've ever had who blogged out of a coma. <laughs> and that is actually true. I wrote, a, I have no idea how I did this, but I wrote a blog on my laptop and somehow I managed to send it to somebody who sent it to the newspaper. And the newspaper published a story about me being saved by an iPhone. So anyway, I had this laptop. My wife said to them, please take it away from him because I was... And, but they gave me a pen and paper and I wrote loads of stuff and I've got the bits of paper and they are so funny, some of the bits of paper. They're things like, I want to see Justin Bieber. You know? Wow, what? you must have been really I was really, <laughs> I mean, I, was, I, I thought I was the king of Norway. Oh, there's so <laughs> many things I don't, it was just bizarre. And, but your son wrote something quite profound yeah, yeah. Uh, when you were in this situation. Yeah. What, what, what did he say? Well, th this to me, I think this is the most extraordinary statement of faith that I've ever come across. So when I got out of hospital, somebody sent me this. My son had collected my daughter from the airport. And after they came up to see me, he wrote on his Facebook page, just been to see my dad with my sister probably for the last time. We're praying that he would be healed, but our prayers have already been answered because my dad's biggest problem has already been dealt with, and that's his sin. And you think, you know, if you're a non-Christian reading that, you've got to think, how weird. What is that? You know, again, what has that guy done? But then, and he said, if my dad is healed, that's an answer to prayer. And if my dad is not healed, that's also an answer to prayer. Now, let me tell you something. When I read that, I was so deeply moved. In fact, for months, I couldn't even repeat it without crying because it's relatively easy to write that in a theology exam. 
I cannot comprehend writing it after you've been at your father's deathbed. It wasn't that he wanted me to die, but he was just simply saying, we trust God to bring good out of this, whatever. You know, and I, to me, I, I'm not sure I've come across a faith like that in anybody. Mm. So throughout this experience, and what was your experience of prayer that you encountered? Obviously, you've mentioned that your son has just said your prayers are answered. It seems like it's kind of you win either way. Yeah. Um, but... Well, okay, two things. The personal experience, um, this was not for me a pleasant experience. This was not going to the gates of heaven and, uh, and it wasn't for me being conscious. In fact, I had dark experiences, which even though you're a very good interviewer, Rob, I, I, I won't talk about because they were, if you ask me about evil, I experienced evil and it was the darkest, darkest, darkest evil. And it was just horrendous, it was just horrible. Um, at one point, in terms of prayer, let me give you a couple of examples. I wrote on a piece of paper to my wife, I'm in hell. And she held my hand and she, t I don't remember any of this. And she stroked my hand and she said, David, you're not in hell. You're not in hell. And, you know, we can pray. And I wrote, prayer is useless. You can't pray. And she thought about it and she went away and she realized even what she said had seemed trite because I was feeling that I was in hell. So what they did, my family did, they didn't know what to do. So they came and every night before they left me, they would read one of the Psalms. I had the terrors of the night. So I was so terrified about going to sleep because when I went to sleep, I had the most incredibly awful visions. I wouldn't even call them dreams that were so real. And I was so scared to go to sleep. And... I only went to sleep when I heard you shall not be afraid of the terrors of the night. And it was this um, Australian band from Melbourne, Sons of Korah, who would sing it. And they would play it and uh, my family would come in and they would read the Psalms. And I remember the nurses saying, you know, we, we've never experienced anything like this. We have priests come in and, you know, perform last rites and do different things, but you guys really mean it. But the other aspect of prayer is a different one. And I'd be really interested to see how people explain this. My church, which is a very conservative Presbyterian church, doesn't do this kind of thing, right? But the clerk of the assembly sent a note out to all the churches, says, whatever you're doing at midnight, it was a Sunday in November, no, midday in a Sunday in November, um, stop what you're doing and pray for David. And they did. I didn't get better immediately, but from that weekend, and that weekend it was the closest I came to death because I caught pneumonia and for 18 hours they pumped water out of me and the... The physiotherapist rather said she, she did not think I would live at all. From that day on, I began to get better. Now, you can put that down to coincidence, but here's another thing. Let me give you an example. I got a letter from Malaysian Baptists in Malaysia who told me that they were being woken up at three in the morning to pray for me. And I heard that testimony from lots of different people. So we now, said they were, they were woken up just had a prompting or something. Yes. It, wasn't, it wasn't as though someone rang him up. No, they, they, didn't, they didn't know me. I mean, some Malaysians did because we had a Malaysians in our church. But it was people getting this tremendous... Uh, another friend in Spain said he just... God would not let him go to sleep without him praying for me. And, you know, we pray for the sick all the time. There was a, a minister, another minister in my church who was, who was sick at the same time as me. He was expected to live. I was expected to die. He died. I lived. How do you explain that? You know, and it wasn't because he wasn't prayed for enough. All I'm saying is that in this particular instance of prayer, 
God seemed to give some people a burden for prayer mm. that was quite overwhelming. But I mean, so how many coincidences therefore do you need for it to be an answer to prayer and not just simply a string of coincidences? Look, something can speak coincidence. So let me explain again how this works. So I'm in hospital. I'm, now I argued with my um, surgeon a lot. My surgeon was a man called Mr. Shimmy, who uh, was and is a Muslim, uh, a liberal Muslim from Saudi Arabia. But anyway, I phoned him up, and I, I, or I phoned it, his wife answered the phone, and I said, we're having a Thanksgiving service for my life, and I would really like to ask your husband if he would like to come along to the service. And she said, oh, he'd be delighted. And I said, oh, that makes me so happy. And she said, why? I said, your husband saved my life. And she said, no, 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 that's not what he says. I said, oh, what does he say? He says that you're one of the two people in the whole of his career, 30 years, that he has no idea why you're alive. Uh, except, he says, God saved your life. And I went, oh, dash it. My theology's been corrected by a Muslim. <laughs> I'm going to lose my job, you know. <laughs> I think Mr. Shimmy saved me. I think medicine saved me. I think God enabled that medicine to save me. But I also do think that in this particular instance, there was a miraculous intervention. So, so how much then do you attribute to prayer or to a miraculous intervention? And how much do you attribute to the medical help you well, received. do you know what? Here's a strange thing. Prayer virtually does nothing by itself. Just praying doesn't do anything. It's who you pray to. It's God who does things. And, you know, most of my prayers are answered in normal means. I pray for food, and I really do pray for food, and it does, it does not fly in the window from a raven. I basically go and, and, you know, I buy food, but nonetheless, I would still sit at the table and give thanks to God because I don't think it's my money that ultimately has brought that food or ultimately, I think it's, it's the whole thing. So I have a, a whole worldview. I do believe that there are um, times of particular intervention, but normally God uses the normal. That's how I would argue. So the normal by means of professional medical health? help. Yeah, professional medical help, um, you know, rain falling on the ground. So, but I mean, we're... we're here in Australia just now with this dreadful drought. I'm, I'm sorry, I, I'm a Christian. I believe it's right to pray that God would send rain. Um, and I do. And I just because it. you pray for rain doesn't mean that it's going to come next week. No, because prayer is not automatic. So my, my, like my family praying for my getting well, they weren't saying if we believe enough, then he will get well. What they were saying was, Lord, this is our heart's desire and we're pleading with you. You mentioned before that Psalm 91 in particular was yeah. an important psalm for you. Uh, it says in verses 9 and 10 of Psalm 91, it says, If you say the Lord is my refuge and you make the most high your dwelling, no harm will overtake you, no disaster will come near your tent. Now that clearly wasn't the case for you because you were nearly dying. So how can the words no harm will overtake you, no disaster will come near your tent be true for you? Because it's not a promise that you will never experience any harm in the sense of nothing bad will happen to you, but you will never experience the kind of harm that takes God's love away from you. Now, the New Testament book of James also speaks about the effectiveness of prayer, and he speaks, incidentally, in the context of healing. It says in James 5.16, Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. So in what ways then are things changed by the power of a righteous person's prayers? So I, when I became a minister, I went to this uh, small highland village, as I said, in Broda. Um, I remember going there, and I remember saying to one of the elders, I've read this in James, and it talks about anointing people with oil, but we're good Presbyterians, we don't do that, do we? 
And he looked at me and he said, David, look up at the top of the kitchen shelf. And I looked and he said, what's that? He said, that's, I said, it's a bottle of olive oil. He said, yes. And that's what we use for anointing people. And I said, you do that? And he said, yes, of course we do. That's what the Bible says. And that's what we did. What we didn't, we didn't hold healing meetings. But if someone in the congregation asked us to come and pray, I would go with the other elders. We would pray. We would anoint them with oil. We would lay hands on them. I don't think James says that is an absolute guarantee that the person will always get better. I mean, we'd be the most popular church in the world if that was the case. <laughs> I taught my kids to pray about everything. Uh, in that, and I would pray about it too. I pray about sickness. I pray about these things. But I also do believe that God is sovereign and God is good. And sometimes he allows the sickness to continue. But this, that sickness is then for the glory of God. Mm. And as your son said, that there's a bigger problem about your forgiveness of your sins. Yes, and also here's the other thing. You know, the hardest thing for me to come to terms with is I'm going to die. And I remember there was a BBC journalist called Leslie Riddick, and she had me on her program. And she said to me, David, and this shows you the world in which we live. She said, did you, when you were so ill, did you like have an experience of going to the gates of heaven and St. Peter turning you back and saying, no, 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 go back. And I said, no, I had no experience like that. I didn't tell her about the hellish experience I had. And she said, that's a shame because um, you would have made a fortune on the New York Times bestsellers list. But she said, did your theology change? And I said, no, my theology, I, I, I'd always believed in Jesus as the son of God, in heaven and hell, the Bible is the word of God. I still believe that. She said, did anything change? I said, oh, yes. In a sense, everything changed. She said, why? I said, do you know, before I believed it here. Now I believe it here. And I used to be terrified of death as a Christian. And lots of Christians are, and no wonder. It's a horrible experience. But I would say that after that experience, I trust the Lord. I, trust, I, I, I long to be with Jesus. I really do. Uh, I know I'm going to die. And I know I'm not going to die until I'm ready for him. And he's finished with me here. And when you believe that, it's such an assurance so did your view of prayer change as a result of your experience? No. My view of prayer didn't change in the sense of I always knew it was important, but it's amazing how you can know something and not do it. I think that what changed for me was not if I pray enough, God will give me what I want, because I didn't believe that and I don't believe that. But what changed for me was this, that then, not so much now, and I have to be reminded of it every but every morning I would wake with thankfulness in my heart. And I think the first part of prayer is thankfulness. And then prayer is also acknowledging the greatness of God. And one thing that did change, I think, is I knew theologically that I was dependent on God. But I've known every day since I had this experience that I am dependent on God. I can't do anything without God. So David, is prayer effective? God is effective, and we pray to God. Prayer in and of itself is not effective. You pray to me, it's not going to work. You pray to the idols, it's not going to work. They're dumb. You pray to Jesus, he's going to hear. Well, let me leave you with some of the Bible's answer to this big question, is prayer effective, from James 5.16. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. I look forward to you joining us next time for Bigger Questions. Please thank our guest today, David Robertson. Enjoy Bigger Questions? You can help us keep asking them for as little as $1 a podcast. 
Support the show. Go to patreon.com slash bigger questions.